following podcast contains adult materials such as swearing and mathematics. We'll let you decide which is scarier. Moreover, we of course know everything about the presenter mathematics. But if you think we've made a mistake, think of it as an application of Cunningham's Law. The best way to get the right answer on the internet is to post the wrong one. That's our excuse, and we're sticking with it. Welcome to another edition of Maths at the Movies, where, simply put, we're two doctors and a dame who want to critique <laughs> movies with a mathematical bent. <laughs> with joining me now and forevermore is the dangerous Ben Parker and the dynamic Liz. Hello! How are you guys? I'm fine! Hello! All right! I mean, I'd like to be a dame. There is nothing like a dame! <laughs> this is self-identification at this point. Excellent. How, how are you, Liz? I'm all right. I'm 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 very pleased to have been upgraded to a doctorate by Dr. Oh. Parker. <laughs> Like I said, this is purely self-identification. But I'm actually lying this week. What? As I mentioned no. last week, yes. I wouldn't know do I'm that, Tom. Oh. As, uh, uh, it had to happen sooner or later. Are you not a doctor? Uh, as I mentioned last week, where we have a super, super secret special guest Ooh. amongst us. And as long as the internet holds up, he will remain amongst us. Ooh. He's the one, the only, the debutante, James Grime. Oh. How are you, James? Hi, everyone. Hello. Happy to be a deputant. Thank you very much. Excellent. And, and I should mention why you're here. So uh, this is our fifth episode. I mean, who knew we'd get to five episodes? Hey! I'm, I'm personally impressed. But um, as, as people who hopefully we have an audience and hopefully they've been listening, they may recognise that Ben and I fly by the seat of our pants during this. We, we know a bit <laughs> of maths here and there, but quite often Liz will stump us with a, a good uh, question Tom, that we haven't Tom, anticipated. Yeah. I'm not wearing pants today, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wearing pants, oh, that's even worse. <laughs> oh, ben is, ben, is that why you started with your video off? And, and can we keep that <laughs> being the case? This is why we're audio only all the way through, guys. But James, welcome! Thanks, thanks. I feel so welcome. But yes, so this week we watched The Imitation Game. And and because of that, I thought we'd better get an expert in. I'm failing that. Oh, and failing that, you're the next best option. So yeah. can you give us a bit of a background to why you are such a good guy to talk to about The Imitation Game? Uh, because I look after an Enigma machine and it's just over there. Ooh, really? Yeah. What? You you have your own Enigma? Wow! <laughs> that is amazing. I am so excited. It's one of the best moments of my life. Um, I, I was actually at an outreach event with James, and he takes it out, actually out into public, and you get to look at it. <laughs> Does he? <laughs> <laughs> We're not talking about Ben's <laughs> lack of pants. The Enigma machine. The, the Enigma machine, I will clarify. But I've got, I've got to say, when, when I was with James at this, he actually took the, the machine apart. It, it's very easy, easy to take it apart and rearrange it. Yeah. But what really drove home the history of this amazing evil machine was the fact that on each of the rotors was stamped the swastika. Oh, my God. The little eagle thing that the, the Nazis used to use, yeah. Just the, the eagle and the swastika. It, it was amazing. Did you manage to put it back together afterwards? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Thomas did not destroy the Enigma machine. Okay. It was I believe fine. I believe I gave it a hug, didn't I? You were so happy. <laughs> I was so happy to see that machine. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful, incredible piece of history. I, it, I think it. You know, if everyone gets the chance, they should go see it. But uh, so yes, you you do lectures on this. You yeah. go to science festivals, schools, 
Um, and how did you get into this? How did you get your hands on an enigma machine? <laughs> so um, I was working as a... Waitress in a cocktail bar. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a far more interesting story than the one I'm going to tell. Uh, no, I was working as a postdoc and uh, Cambridge University have uh, an Enigma machine on loan and they needed someone who could string a sentence together to talk about Enigma machines. And I'd said, I, I want to do that, please. And who wouldn't? Who, who wouldn't? Yeah, no, that's, that's fabulous. Cause if I, is that Enigma machine Simon Singh? Yes, that's right. So that belongs to Simon Singh. Excellent, yeah. And he bought that with the proceeds from the code book. I love, right. I love this sort of intricate web that, that's built up around it. <laughs> so in case it. people don't know, the book to buy if you're interested in codes and code breaking is Simon Singh's book, The Code Book. No one asks me to plug anything. This is not sponsored. It is the book to get. It's a good book. Oh, it's a really good book. It is. It is. I mean, it's it, it's one of those things that when um, I've done interviews for Oxford and everyone who walks through the door, you know, what are you interested in? Oh, well, I've read this book, that book, Simon Sings the Code Book. It's yeah. it's just one that everyone says. It's such a good book. And he's not short of a bob or two. He's bought it. He's bought an Enigma machine set so that we can use it for educational reasons. And that's what it's used for. And you do it so well. Um, you've actually just come back from Norway. Was that to do with Enigma or...? Uh, I show it around the world. International man of mystery, travelling around the world, telling my stories. Well, it's just going to work. When you take the Enigma machine to Norway, mm. do, do you sort of check it in? Does it get its own seat? Right. I was going to ask about this. So do you have to pass any special laws because it's a war machine? Well, I'm giving things away here. I'm giving away secrets. But uh, I just tell them it's a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> because a code machine sounds a bit dodgy so right. if they sort of ask you why it's got the swastika stamped on it do you just sort of say well you know free country but actually hold on modern day it, oh I'm travelling with a typewriter that must sound equally as dodgy would, yes oh no 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 hipsters hipsters all carry hip typewriters yeah that's how they it's how they write now James if you grow a beard no one will ask yeah, carry okay. around an avocado a beard and an okay. avocado you'll be fine yeah I assume I assume that's what they think I'm doing anyway uh, I, I was going to uh, some country recently and I was sending it through security and the security officer went, oh, that's interesting. And then he shouted to the guy at the other end saying, there's a typewriter coming through. It looks like an Enigma machine, but it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you have just lied to airport security. Oh, don't, don't, don't spread this around on the internet. Thanks very much. James, your balls must be huge. Anyway, <laughs> let's get on with it. Now we've incriminated James as... A, a... That's why he gets it out at outreach events. <laughs> anyway. Let's get on with the film, shall we? So, um, so this week we watched The Imitation Game, which um, begins with uh, the arrest of Alan Turing, um, whose house has been broken into. Um, and hang on, hang on, hang on a moment. Um, did, did you say The Imitation Game? Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, I think we've got a problem here, guys. Have you watched the wrong film? No. Well, um, hang on. This is what I watched. Ben, watch it. <laughs> Oh, you watched The Generation Game. <laughs> Did you watch three hours of The Generation You know, since Bruce Forsyth died, I, I couldn't work out what the bastard it was. It was an adequate send-off to Sir Bruce Forsyth. Oh, dear. I, oh, I put, no, I'm just joking. I just wanted to play a... 
sorry. Magnificent. <laughs> right. But get right, can I actually, before we do get into this, cause I've got some facts from IMDb, and it's it's a beautiful fact. I don't I don't know if it's true. I'm giving you my sources, IMDb, and I need to tell. Right, right, boys, 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 boys. Yes. I have not yet told you the plot. We haven't. So, I, I, will you hold your horses? Because I've got but a this plot. This is such a good fact. Tell. I need to tell no. you. Because no, it's such a... keep it in. Tell us your fact later. Keep it in. There's, there's a process to this podcast, Tom. There's a there's process. A process. Okay, we talk when about I tell film. you this fact, <laughs> no. When I tell you this no. fact, you will say I no. wish you'd told me that okay. earlier. That's fine. We accept that. I'm sorry, James. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This had to happen when you were. Is, with this, us. is yeah. it always like this? It's, yeah, it's always. It's anarchy in the UK. It's very embarrassing for us the way that Tom behaves <laughs> sometimes. But um, he's like an excited puppy, right? This. I think you better get on with it. So we begin with the arrest of uh, Alan Turing and. Uh, the rest of the film is sort of broadly him telling a detective the story of uh, how he single-handedly, against the wishes of the British establishment, um, cracked the Enigma machine and won the Second World War. Uh, Hurrah! Me- I kind of feel the film makes it sound a bit single-handed. Yeah, so I, I was, I, I read up a little bit on Wikipedia afterwards about the film, and it, as I understand it, it both portrays um, the kind of establishment as not helping, which is quite unfair, but also portrays yes, Turing yeah. as kind of completely unable to communicate with other human beings, which also doesn't seem to have massively been the case. Oh, we'll come back to this. We'll come back to this later. Uh, so, 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 I mean, James, I mean, what, what's your opinion on this? I, mean, I think you'll know him better than most of us from from his work. Uh, so, um, I'm here to spoil everyone's fun. I think. I think that's my role. Oh. <laughs> oh. No, Liz has already done that for me. I wanted to bring a fact out. No, no, no facts, Tom. Thinking. Clearly, having too much fun here, and now my job is to be the party pooper and to tell right. you everything that the the film. Did not get right. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay, so yes, hit me with your questions. The way the film portrayed Turing, is that the Turing you feel is it, his personality was? No, no. So the, so they've got they've got some sort of uh stereotype of a mathematician. Uh so in the yeah. in the film he's Asperger's kind of Asperger's spectrum. spectrum. Yeah. Uh, so unsocial, antisocial, I don't know what the correct word might be social problems, and yep. none of that's true. Uh, so he was shy. Yep. That's hardly a crime, is it? And uh, he was very, you know, well-liked, um, good with children, sense of humour. He knew what a joke was. Yeah, so um, I'm afraid that's just the beginning of what the film gets wrong. Yeah, that's just the beginning. So we've not even got through the film. Liz, please carry on. Apart from his personality and now the rest of the film. Okay. So, um, uh, well, I I don't have much more to go. So while he is, he is decoding the Enigma machine, he invents a computer, again, all on his own. Um, He gets engaged to Kira Knightley, um, despite being Mm gay. Um, Mm I think that's actually true. That's actually a fact. Oh, it, that is true. He did. Yes. Alan Turing did get engaged to... Uh, to Keira Knightley. Not, no, yeah. Keira Knightley. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's fact. It is. Um, and then um, at the... So once they've, once they've won the war, they uh, <laughs> Alan Turing is then convicted of... What's the... Is it indecency that he was that he was. It was gross indecency. Yes. Gross indecency, yes. Yes. 
Not even a nice kind of indecency. (laughs) (laughs) He's shown at the end of the film, um, sort of a shell of his former self, um, having uh, been uh, chemically castrated. Um, Mm -hmm. And we we then learn that he took his own life. Um, And and that's sort of the end. Um, Although there's, there's some sort of, and what happened next about the fact that he he was pardoned and um, that he is kind of remembered as uh, a great mathematician and man. God, I was going to say, can I uh, throw in uh, some facts about uh, the accuracy of this film? Yeah, please uh, do. Because please there do. is a website called there is a f- website called Information is Beautiful. It's about uh, you know st- statistics and looking at beautiful ways of displaying statistics. Yes, no, I've seen that website. It is a really nice website. Yeah, they went some, through some recent based on a true story films for in the last decade or so, and they rated them on how accurate they are. They took each fact that was presented in the film, rated them as true Ooh. or false. Ooh. So, do you want to see the winners and losers? Of this. Please do. I'll have to. I'll put this as a link to uh, the post that Absolutely. we do. Have links to the bottom for further reading, and I'll put that there. But please do tell us what what was the best. Okay, so there are different filters they use. There's there's. Hey guys, come on! It's a movie. We can we can uh, you know exaggerate little bits. And there's super yeah. pedant yeah. level. Okay, so okay, the top uh, on this list was Selma. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw the film Selma about right. civil yeah. rights. Yeah, it was about the civil right, American civil rights, and that scored one hundred percent. Which fantastic! Which yeah. I am amazed by. Uh, the Big Short, which is about the credit crunch, uh, scored ninety-one percent. Twelve Years a Slave, eighty-eight percent. Pretty good. Pretty good. Hidden Figures, which you might be interested oh, in. Oh, we're going to watch that for sure. Got seventy-two percent. And uh, can you guess which film was dead last? Bambi! <laughs> oh, it's, it's not Imitation Game, is it? It can't be last. The Imitation Game was last oh. with 41%. No. Oh. 41%. Oh, it is more untrue than true. Wow. This is on the wow. flexible but, I mean, scale. On the, on the super pedant yeah. scale, it's uh, 18% true. <laughs> To be fair, they did say at the front, based on a true story. You know, yeah. so, Maybe they so, should have you know, said loosely based on a true story. Loosely. There was a guy called Alan Turing. Yes. Yeah, but we're not going to criticise Shakespeare for you know taking liberties with the life of Hamlet, are we? You know? <laughs> the, the Information is Beautiful website does do a whole breakdown, scene by scene, of exactly what they graded and what facts. And yeah. some of the facts are things like, uh, in the imitation game, uh, at the end of the film... The Allies win the Second World War, and they rate that as true. <laughs> That's a low. That's bar. true. Excellent. Right. That is quite impressive. We are setting nice. a low bar. Can, I, can I throw out one of the facts that I found from IMDb? Okay. I want to say this fact now. Okay. So one of the facts. This is under the real pedantic scale, and I love it so much. So at one point, when they crack the first code, Hugh Alexander reads out the message. And it says that a German submarine is at 53 degrees, 24 minutes north, one degree west. This position is actually right in the middle of England, just east of Rugby. (laughs) (laughs) That I love. Someone saw that and thought, right, where is that submarine? But no, the fact that, I mean, that wasn't the fact I want to get out there. This is the fact, because this fact is A, weird, and B, gets weirder. Right. Alex Lawther, who plays young Turing, and Bumblebee Crumblesnatch um, wore dentures in the film. Okay, They wore fake teeth. The weirdest part of this, well, not the weirdest, a weird part, 
is that they were exact copies of Alan Turing's own 60-year-old set of false teeth. It gets weirder. It gets weirder. Yeah. Uh, Bendy Dick Cumbie Snitch okay. wore dentures at his own behest. No one told him to. What? The director... I've got this from IMDb. This may or may not be true, <laughs> but that's that's where I got it from. I, I love that fact. I think it's about... I think it's an appropriate fact for this film in that it's probably not true. <laughs> It probably isn't true, but I love it anyway. I think I that's, that's it anyway. a suitable In fact. In some ways, life was not kind to Alan Turing, and so I, I it really was. Other than kind of portraying his personality differently, I, I sort of think, well, maybe it writes some wrongs that there's a film that kind of goes, yeah, he just did everything and it was all him, and you know, <laughs> maybe it's not it's not strictly true, but it, it, maybe he did de- he deserves. I, I just think it, it kind of covers over a lot of other people's yes. um, Obviously that is offers true. to that it. Is true. You know, and, yeah. and I do I do agree with you. You know, this guy had a terrible ending to an amazing career. I mean, as I often say, you know, Alan Turing did three amazing things in his life. You know, he broke the Enigma code. He created the first theory of com- computation. He did. He created my field of mathematical biology. If he had done any one of those single things, he would be remembered as a genius. The fact he did all of that and more. Ah, oh, he's my hero. He really is my academic hero. And he, the worst part is he could still be alive. Really? He, he'd be very old, <laughs> but he could. He really could. Wow. He could have taught you. Oh, but, that's depressing. Well, probably would have been at Oxford. He could have taught Ben. Well, actually, there was um because a few years ago, I think 2012 was the centenary of his birth, mm. um, or something like that. Um, there was a lot of books uh, being brought out about then about Turing and his work, and one of them uh, there was an article in it written by I can't remember his name. It was a guy in Bath, who, and they'd gone through his old notes again because people have done this, but they went through his old notes and found that he was working on the Carn Hilliard equation. The Carn Hilliard equation wasn't created until 40 years after Turing died. Wow. That's how far ahead of his time he was. That's amazing. Actually, there's a question here I would like to ask all of you. So this idea of how malleable is history? Is it okay to do it because it was done for the benefit of feeling sad and the tragic story of someone? Or should we be more faithful? I have a problem with this. Yeah, I have a problem with this. So, so... The story itself is dramatic enough without adding extra stuff. Very true. So we're talking about breaking German codes in World War II. The true story is dramatic enough. They could have made this film without having to add the nonsense that they have added, which we haven't even gone into yet. Mm. Um, so the blackmail storyline just didn't happen, did it? He just never... There, no, there was no, a guy no, no, no. who was a Soviet spy, but they never met. Well, that, Cairn Cross was a code breaker at Bletchley, but they just... Well, he's not even a code breaker. So Cairn Cross worked in Hut 3. His job was to take the decryptions uh, mm. and then to hide where they had come from. <laughs> just stuff them around behind <laughs> behind sofas. Yeah. So do we, think ly- do we think lying is always a bad thing in a movie, James? And what about airport security when you're carrying... <laughs> <laughs> Nailed to the wall. Yes, it's a terrible thing to do. Absolutely. I can't believe anyone who would do such a thing. Dangerous as well. I mean, I I kind of think it's difficult. It's difficult to make something which is a great film telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And there's such a lot of truth to tell. You know, for me, it was entertaining. Uh, I, I, I do have to agree with Ben somewhere along those because I mean, you wouldn't have science fiction if you couldn't Yeah. Lie. Well, but I, but I, I think, think it's about whether it's purporting 
to tell the truth or not. Sure. So I think kind of saying like, you know, we, these were interesting people, so we're going to make up a story involving them and some facts about them. But I think... So I think any, okay. any film that does it, they should have the director at the end has to sit in a room <laughs> to camera and justify exactly why he's done it. And any correction he makes should be exactly the same length of the film. So that there should be, <laughs> there should be an appendix. There should be the an appendix to every film. Uh, every historical film Other, otherwise I mean Star Wars would be you know so actually there's not another galaxy <laughs> no, that is historical it that is, is historical it, it happened a long long time, time ago. ago in a galaxy yeah a long time ago thank you yes a long time ago in a galaxy far far away okay. yeah. um, and hopefully a gal- galaxy where George Lucas didn't sell out but <gasps> um, <laughs> But no, I think. I mean, I think at the beginning the film says, you know, this is based on a true life story. It's not like, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the man who knew Infinity, where it's trying to be, you know, much more. Well, of actually, a we never biopic. looked into how truthful that James. If you've got that <laughs> website up, does it have the man who knew Infinity? No, it? it doesn't have that yet. Although I know that film quite well myself. Um, we reviewed that term last time. What, what did you think? Far more accurate, but and a lot more dull. Yeah. But it was more dull, exactly. So this is the thing we have to, you know, there's a there's an x axis which is interesting, and there's a y axis which is true. <laughs> oh, and we've and got y equals c minus x. You mathematicians, just everything is a bloody graph. Eventually, you just can't help yourself but plot it. Absolutely. I we apologise for the graphic language, <laughs> but there is a line. Hey, there is a line, where, and I think this is on the wrong side of that line. I've got to say, forty one truth i didn't think it was that bad but wow wow yes but i mean what, what do you call you know what do you call the truth you know is it true that you know um uh that uh, uh benedict cucumber's uh, fiance was kira knightley you know well that that was true he did alan turing did actually propose to joan joan clark, clark. yeah joan clark thank you joan clark um but they and he did tell her that uh, he was homosexual and she said fine mm. Uh, but then he did break it off. I believe that's true. Yeah, it's, it? it's a lot less dramatic than it is in the film. It was a much more stiff upper lip, uh, 1940s English kind of thing. So, yeah, he confessed he was gay quite early on. She thought, oh, she, oh, that's not something you get over, is it? And, <laughs> it's like, oh, well, and, and that, that engagement carried on for the rest of the summer. That's it. As I, as I mentioned with The Man Who Knew Infinity... All biopics, or biopics as Ben wants to say, they always squeeze everything into two hours. So even though these things are a human's life that occur over years, this made World War II feel like it took a weekend. Do you want a four-year movie? I mean, that's not going to (laughs) work. Does the explanation by the director then have to go on for four years as well? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, My problem with the movie is... um, I I liked it. I liked it in general. But my problem with the movie was it's done the standard thing that we're finding repeatedly in movies about mathematics. It's like, here's a mathematician and we're going to present him as some nerd, some sort of socially awkward chap who's not able to, uh, you know, talk to anyone in a pub, for example, or, you know, talk to his colleagues or talk. All mathematicians are weird in maths movies. And Actually, on this point, on this point, it's a very interesting point Ben brings up. I think it was a very brave thing to do with the beginning of the movie because your protagonist alan turing isn't likable no mm. he's an anti-hero he's like, an arse. like darth vader <laughs> i don't think darth vader is the protagonist oh no but he is in star wars episode one oh. it's beyond my star wars knowledge 
We're not meant to like him, but by the end, we have a certain degree of sympathy for him. Oh, you mean the baby Anakin Skywalker? Yeah. I found it annoying. Well, yeah, it was annoying. And Alan Turing <laughs> was annoying as well. So again, he still fits. Absolutely. So, so there's parallels there. So it, so if we were going to recast Star Wars with mathematicians, what we're saying is Anakin <laughs> would be Alan Turing. Yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi would be Leonardo <laughs> <laughs> Aristotle would be Yoda. What? I mean, like... oh, that'd be brilliant. That'd be perfect. Actually, on that point, uh, Leonard Euler, I did like the moment where Kira Knightley is talking to Alan Turing, and she goes, "Oh, that you can use Euler's theorem." Ah, yes, yes. Euler's. Yes. But but on this point, IMDb saved me once again because I was scoffing at this, going, <laughs> "It's pronounced Euler." <laughs> but IMDb has a counterfact. Oh. Okay. Joan Clark describes Euler's theorem, but pronounces it incorrectly. She pronounces it Euler, not the correct Euler. Yes. This seems unlikely as she was a double first degree in mathematics. However, yeah. in the 1940s, pernickety correct pronunciation of foreign names was not a noted characteristic of the English. <laughs> and it is, and this, is true, this was IMDB. I can't, I can't. And it is also likely that the Germanic Euler pronunciation was simply not as widely known at the time, even amongst knowledgeable mathematicians, especially since Germany was the enemy. Wow. Euler was Swiss. That's a lot so, of hoops they've jumped through to, to correct that mistake. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. But what was really interesting in terms of, we'll get to the math section in a moment, but what uh, they're doing on the grass, if you look at the notebook, is actually um, a bit of work on prime numbers, which would then become the basis of RSA, which is the more oh. modern day equivalent of code breaking. And although that, again, didn't happen, but they, uh, this was an Easter egg from the director. He wanted to put that oh, in. Oh, okay. I didn't see that. Oh. What was Bletchley Park like during World War Two? There was about 10,000 people there. So I think I think they can take... Yes. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I thought it was probably about 150. 10,000? Yeah, it was a factory. By the end of the war, it was a factory. At the beginning, it was a research group. Like you were saying, they were research mathematicians, academics from Cambridge and Oxford. It was a research group atmosphere. Uh, but then they started to turn it into a factory. But that's what yeah. that's what happens if you get too much funding for any given research area. It just becomes a man. <laughs> you know. Actually, in terms of the secrecy, though, again on the tour that I was taken on, they said that um, the huts that they were in, you know, they had all they had three, four, five, six, seven, eight. They had all these different huts where they would break different codes and manage different work. They said that they would often stuff them full of the old codes because they were so yes. holy and the wind would come through. Mm-hmm. Yes, so- <laughs> they keep finding these old codes when they're renovating the huts at Bletchley Park. Wow. They're stuffed in, wow. stuffed into the walls. So were they actually in huts? Uh, yeah, they were they were yeah in huts. So they they started in the mansion. That's the big posh building you might remember mm. from the film. Yeah, and then they had to build some huts when they got recruiting more and more people. Uh, yeah, they were temporary. They were temporary buildings. So, so the computer that Alan Turing built by himself. Okay, um, <laughs> is that really what it looked like? Because that was cool. <laughs> I mean, did they get that anywhere nearby? It's like they started off and whirly, 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 whirly. Um, uh, well, that's what it looks like, but it's not a computer. But yes, that is what it looks like. Oh, it does look cool. Whoa, points for pedantry. Ah, oh, excellent. <laughs> it's not a computer. It's a mechanical machine. It can't do any more. It can't do more than one job. One thing I do want to mention about Alan Turing and Bletchley is that one thing they pride themselves on is Alan Turing's office. They've kept it exactly the same way as he would have had it. And one of the things they always point out on the tour is Alan Turing's mug, which is yes. handcuffed to the radiator. Right. 
So there is there is a story that he didn't want anyone stealing his mug. Right. And so, I mean, there are a lot of stories about Turing. He had idiosyncrasies, how as all he, mathematicians do, and as everyone does. How did he take does. it to make a cup of tea? Well, this is it. He had the key. Oh, I see. But there was one time when he lost it. And so there's apparently a story when he was sitting on the floor drinking coffee <laughs> attached to the radiator. This is usually told as an example of how eccentric Alan Turing was. But it seems perfectly reasonable to me. It does. Like yeah, a perfectly, yeah. perfectly reasonable thing to do. Yeah. We have somebody at our office at work, uh, totally as an aside, that um, puts a tea bag down a little saucer and puts a note with the tea bag saying, I want to use this tea bag twice. Please don't throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, exactly. that's amazing. Isn't I, that weird? I, I kind of love the idea that, you know, you've got this this kind of team of incredibly bright people at Bletchley Park. You know, they're, they're undertaking this massively important work for the war effort and saving loads of lives. And and yet they still have this kind of office bullshit where it's like, you took my mug, you didn't wash it up. You used my milk. <laughs> <laughs> it's like everyone that, else. That's what academics are like. Yes. And the Brit- it really is. British Empire was one and a nice strong cup of tea. So, uh, you know. Yeah. Actually, no. Talking about um, idiosyncrasies, let's let's try and bring some truth into this. So I'm going to throw out some stories, and James, you can correct me if these are some. some... So another story I've heard about uh, Alan is um, that he, during the war, he buried some silver. Ah, is it? Is this true? Yes, yes, yes. That's right. So he buried some silver, uh, a couple of silver bars, uh, and then uh, wrote a code about where it was, and then. uh, hid the code somewhere, I think, and then uh, lost the code and couldn't find the silver. Oh, he bars lost the again. code. Yeah. So, so I had thought it would be that he went to try and find the silver, and where he yeah. dug up, it just wasn't there yeah, anymore. Was, yeah. Uh, but no. So, so uh, from what I've heard is that he bought the silver because if if they did lose the war and currency got devalued yes. or something, he wanted something still uh, of value. That's, that's right. That's was right. Alan Turing good at crosswords? No. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He hated them. He hated them. He wasn't very into puzzles and crosswords. Not very much. Uh, so that whole thing, yeah, setting a crossword competition is not Alan Choi. So that didn't happen? Uh, no, it didn't happen. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story of where, what it's based on. Um, so for a start, Joan Clark was not recruited by a crossword competition. No, 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 no. She had a double first from Cambridge. Uh, she was recruited yeah. by her lecturers because she was very good at maths. Uh, she was incredible mathematician. But the Telegraph newspaper did have a crossword competition and uh, people went and did this competition and the following week some of them were contacted with a job offer at Bletchley Park. It wasn't organised by Bletchley Park. It wasn't done on purpose. But there is truth in that story. It's a good story. Oh, it wasn't done on purpose. So I, I thought it had been done on purpose, but no, it, it no, was just... It was someone taking the opportunity because it was in the Telegraph, this competition. I am learning so much from you, James. I'm glad you're here. I am a well of knowledge. A well. I am a well. Not a puddle please, like myself and Ben. A well. Please plumb my debts. <laughs> I found the kind of Kira Knightley figure slightly odd in the film in that they make this big thing of oh well she was a woman so she was treated differently but then they also treat her really differently because she was a woman so rather than kind of saying like <laughs> well you know she just kind of got a job like everyone else because she was had, had gone to university and did really well they sort of had to kind of yes. create this mythology that she was just sort of ter- you know terribly sort of British and, and close to her parents but 
But and and very good at crosswords, and and then you know just kind of all a bit bewildered by the whole thing. That, that clearly wasn't well. Doesn't appear to have been the case. She she worked for GCHQ after the war for for years, didn't she? I mean, you know, she was just a kind of yes. incredibly talented professional. Yeah, it's very heavy-handed. But she um, she, it was strange though that she wasn't on the same grade as the other codebreakers. So she was there as a codebreaker. Yes, and because yes. she wasn't on, she was a woman, they, she wasn't on the same grade as them. And they had to put her down as a linguist because that was the best they could do. Uh, but she spoke no languages. So she took great pride in her, writing her job was linguist, languages, <laughs> none. But she presumably spoke one. Right, yeah. <laughs> Probably one at least. Probably but that one, one was mathematics. Well, actually, hold on. Um... Alan, actually, I've, I remember the. I've read the. I've read part of the biography by Andrew Hodges. Mm. I couldn't get through it. I'm not a fan of biographies. But Alan Turing actually spoke German because he yes. had some holidays in Germany. Yeah, he, he spoke German. He spoke yeah. French. Yes, uh, which in the film they go, I don't speak German, and they go, What? How you, can you possibly break codes if you don't speak the All language? All you need is Heil Hitler to break a code. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for a start, he did speak German and. Anyway, they don't care because they were recruiting mathematicians on purpose for their mathematical skills. Did he write Indeed. a letter to Churchill? Yes, he wrote a letter to Churchill, wow. but he wasn't writing a letter to Churchill. Hang on, wait. <laughs> he wasn't writing a letter to Churchill. <laughs> was, he, was he pen friends with Churchill? Please tell me. Hey, hey, Winnie. Hey, Winnie, how are you? He wasn't writing a letter uh, as portrayed in the film. Uh, in the film, he's, he gets someone fired, doesn't he? He takes Hugh Alexander's two people, job. Two people fired. Yeah, and he, t- well, he takes Hugh Alexander's job and becomes the boss. Yeah. That he, he was always the boss. Hugh Alexander was yes. his deputy. It was the other way around. He was always the boss. And uh, no, he wrote a letter complaining about lack of resources. He asked for more staff and more money. And to Churchill's credit, he writes back saying, top priority, give these guys everything they yeah. want. Okay, so n- another th- story I want to throw at you, James, All and right. see if it's true. So the, the story I know is Alan Turing, when he was uh, initiated into Bletchley or the armed forces, that he was under military law. But he, he signed a piece of paper saying, do you understand you're in, under military law? Tick yes, if you understand. And he didn't tick it. So when he got in trouble one time, they said, oh, you're in trouble now. You're under military law. And he said, no, I'm not. And so they went and looked for his form and he didn't tick it. <laughs> yeah. And no one, no one cared. And they let him go. Yeah, no, you're right. No, you're saying, yeah, he was... And is, and is that true? He volunteered for the Home Guard. He thought, I, you know, I should at least learn how to fire a gun and do Home Guard things, Dad's Army stuff. And yeah, yeah. that's right. There's a... There's a there's a tick box that says, you are under my uh, control. And he didn't turn up for meetings and he didn't turn up for parades. And he said, check, check your documents. <laughs> I did not agree. I did not agree to that. Fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. But uh, OK, let's go to the math zone. Before we go to the math zone, can we just can we just uh, give our opinions on how Buffalo Custard Bath did at portraying this tragic figure? <laughs> well, so... I, it, I I don't think you can blame Cucumber Bumbledore um, for... I, I, I suspect he did a very good job portraying what the director told him to portray. I actually, incidentally, I thought the, the young um, Cherry mm. was really good. I thought he yeah. was such a yeah. talented yeah, young actor. Yeah, really good. He's, He's a star. Absolutely great. Um, but so I, I, I don't... You know, I, I sort of think you can criticise... The, the performance, but it 
you know, he was, I, I imagine he portrayed very well what he was directed to portray. Uh, Alan Turing was 27 at Bletchley Park, right? He's a kind of shy, beta male. Uh, he's kind of stocky, heavy set. He's got, I tell you who my ideal casting would have been Daniel Radcliffe. Oh, wow. Daniel Radcliffe. And if you yes. had to cast, if you had to cast one of the Muppets, who would it be? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, we saying Beaker. No, it, it would Beaker. be um, Dr. Honeydew. Dr. Honeydew. Bunsen, Bunsen Honeydew. Yeah. I, I think I should have played Keira Knightley. Can I point out, as we've said in past films, we have a good pedigree of actors in maths films. Don't know why, but we do. I love Mark Strong. Oh, I think he's a great actor. I was quite pleased to see the chap from Downton Abbey there, who was playing the chap from Downton Abbey. (laughs) Let's go to the maths zone. It'll be very interesting. The maths zone. How does, or did encryption work so specifically you're talking about enigma yeah right i'm going for a drink i'll be back in five james keep going. okay all right so right welcome to the talk i'm glad to have you here let's start about talking about code breaking code is turning a letter into another letter or a shape or a symbol uh, you may have done it as children this is mm-hmm. this is basically how my talks start. So yeah, you may have done it. So you may have done it as a kid. Let's do this. Okay. Did you ever do uh, codes or uh, secret messages as, ch- as a child? Loads. Yeah. Yes. I still do. <laughs> I had a secret language. Did you? Wait, hold on. Hold on. Pause this. Ben, we need to talk. Ben, did you really? Yes. How did it sound? Yegu segen segum segen legis egan hegen ego tego megus wegulegi hegen yeah that was it. You just sort of... Oh, wait, 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 what did you just say? I said, uh, hello, Thomas Woody. And do, do it again, then. Hey, Galego, take Omegas, Wagalegi. And who else spoke this language with you? Oh, a couple of friends. Right, you're weird. Back to James. <laughs> <laughs> were these real friends? <laughs> they were real friends. When I was teaching, kids used to speak a uh, kind of language that when Aragai, Lollagaik, Fiddler Gilms... <laughs> Did everyone, did everyone do this except me? Did everyone just I talk didn't do gibberish it. I didn't when do they it. were kids? Okay. Yeah, we had friends, Tom. The kids I taught did it, um, but um, I had to learn it so I could understand what they were saying. Because um, you didn't want to let them plot without you. So, okay, you say the same thing. So he- say hello, Thomas Woolley. Uh, okay, I, also, I haven't done it for like 10 years. Hello, girl, hello, go, tolagom, Absolutely bonkers. Anyway. <laughs> But I also used to do, I also used to do, with my friend Lorna, we used to do codes where we would write out the alphabet and you'd write a different symbol underneath each letter and then we would write each other notes in those codes. There you go. That's, there you go. That's, so that's code making. So all Enigma is, and that the way it's different and the way it's better, is Enigma uses a different code for each letter of the message. Uh, so imagine, imagine it was just shifts. Uh, so let's imagine the first letter of the message was shift, a shift of 25. The next one was a shift of 10. The next one was a shift of zero. The next one was a shift of two. So that's what Enigma is doing. Each letter of the message is sent with a different code. Ah. 
So that's what the rotors were doing. So yes. you had these rotors that were twisting around and your your letter would send an electronic pulse one way and they would be sent back. And so it could all be mixed up and the rotors would yeah. turn around. So the rotors but moved. the real yeah. big thing that scrambled, yeah, the, the rotors were important, but the really big thing that scrambled everything up was the stecker board. Yes, Those are, that has the largest number of combinations. Yeah, so the stecker board, yeah, the plug board. It's at the front of the machine. You connect one wire into, or one letter to another using a wire. And that had a huge number of combinations it was just available on military Enigma machines. They were very proud of it. Uh, total number of combinations just for the plug board was a hundred trillion. hundred wow. trillion. Actually, in the in the film, they do say it was a hundred and fifty nine million yeah. million million combinations overall. Yeah, that's that, correct. That's correct? correct. That is the correct figure. So yes. they got that fact. They got that tick. I thought there was more than one Enigma machine because I remember working it out and it being almost exactly a mole. So I remember it being six times 10 to the 23. What's a mole? What? What's a mole? Oh, a mole is the number of atoms in uh, Avogadro. Uh, doesn't matter. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. <laughs> Thomas, that is not how we run this podcast. And in one gram of hydrogen, there's six times 23 hydrogen atoms. In 12 grams of carbon, mm-hmm. there's six times 10 to the 3 atoms of carbon. It's the, the constant that tells you how many atoms are in the atomic weight of its gram thing. Oh, I... Yeah, I w- wish, wish I hadn't asked. I didn't know we were doing chemistry in the movies. <laughs> this is new. <laughs> we, we do it all. But, uh, I mean, it, were, there, were there more than one type of Enigma machine? Yes, there's more than one type of Enigma. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you've got a commercial Enigma machine that was sold to businesses, to banks. Yep. You've got uh, a military version of the Enigma machine. And maybe the one you were looking at was the yes. one that was used on U-boats, which is the submarine ah. Enigma machine, uh, which had four rotors instead of three. Yes. Uh, yes, so it, it was the extra. It was the extra right. hard. You mentioned, so what's the difference? In the film, they mentioned codes and ciphers. So what is the difference between a oh. code and a cipher? Oh, great question. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a code is when you turn one word into another word or a phrase into a phrase. So you might say attack at midnight might become black eagle. All right, that's a code. Uh, a cipher. <laughs> a cipher turns one letter into another. So um, one's working on the level of words, one's working on the level of individual letters. Uh, cipher is much more flexible. So if it was just a shift, you could change the shift every day. Uh, a code, you would need a whole dictionary to translate words into other words. Oh. Right. You lose that dictionary, that code book, you've, you've, you've messed up the code. Your enemy knows your code. Because in the, fi- in the film, they sat and they had a conversation and they sort of said, oh, well, you know, oh, codes are, you know, you could, you could tell it, you can, you can send these codes in plain sight and anyone can hear them, mm-hmm. but you can only understand them if you have the knowledge. Um, so is that is that the same for codes and for ciphers? Or yeah, yeah, a... absolutely. So that's and that's so you'd be able to transmit your messages, uh, or even if you were given it with a messenger, if you didn't trust him or something like that. So it's something that can't be read if intercepted, if captured. I see. Right. My next question. Okay, so you you explain what a code is, but was there a mathematical formula that kind of that translated one letter onto another letter? Uh, well, so yeah, it's, uh, you can do codes with formulas. They're dull, right? You don't want to do that. So, 
So, a sh- welcome to this maths podcast where maths is done. <laughs> Carry on. So, a, sh- a shift. Are you doing a shift of three? That just means you you can write that as add three, right? That's a formula. So, yeah. this was one of the fir- earliest codes. Yeah. The Caesar shift yeah. was exactly this. Yeah. Used by Julius Caesar. So, Caesar said, "Okay, my code is going to be plus n. So, uh, I could put plus fifteen, and all my letters will be shifted right. fifteen. Okay. And you can you can have a code where you multiply by a number. You can have a code where you add and multiply. You can have a code where you raise to a power." which is actually similar to what we use on the internet but um uh, but they're actually they're fewer of those mm-hmm. imagine this this is better imagine just writing out the alphabet on 26 cards and then you shuffle them up vegas style on your table in front of mm-hmm. you right how many ways can you shuffle them up there are more ways of just shuffling it up randomly than any formula that you can think of Come on, tell us, tell us the numbers, James. Okay, if you just want to shuffle up your 26 cards, number of ways of doing that is 400 million billion billion. That is a four with 26 zeros after it. 26? Wow. So that's the Avogadro's card yeah, constant then, isn't it? That's the 10 to the... That's 10 to the 23, I think. So this is more, more than there are atoms. This is more. It's a thousand times more. One of the things that people tend to say is just not to understand the scale. And they said it quite nicely in the movie, you know. So if you were to deal one hand of cards, one shuffle of cards every second... Ben, 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 before you say this, they got this wrong okay, in the film. But if you were to draw one, if you were to draw one of those shuffles of cards mm. every second, then the universe would run out yes. before you had time to finish uh, by a substantial portion. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you shuffle yeah. a pack of cards, people say that is actually a unique thing, that this is a shuffle that's never yeah. been done before. Because, yeah, it's... Uh, how many cards? 54 52. cards? 52 cards, or 54, including 50, the Joker. 52 cards. And so, yeah, there's 52 factorial. We won't explain what factorial is. Oh, no, do I know what factorial is? Liz, explain what a factorial is. Factorial, I think, is where you go 52 times 51 times 55 times... Is that right? Perfect. Yes, yes. yes. It's yes. A, and you go all the way down to one. So n factorial is just n times n minus one, n, ti- n minus two times blah 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 times two, three times two times one, all the way down. And what what's really fun is if you don't call it factorial, you can call all it also call it a bang. So n bang, yes. three bang. I like I like to say it with a jaunty voice. I like to go, hey, fifty two. <laughs> I like to use jazz hands. <laughs> that, that's your bang. Is it? 52 jazz hands. 52. Is that, is that how you... It's like, so 52 <laughs> just means 52, but 52 means yeah. quite a lot bigger than 52. Wow, that's amazing. Your lectures <laughs> must be incredibly clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, uh, Ben, you know how you said that if you um, if you dealt all the unique um, combinations of the pack of cards, the universe yep. would run out before... Yep. When's the universe going to run out? When's the universe going to run out? Yeah. Um, Tuesday. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so don't don't worry. Oh, really? Don't worry about I've paying the I've got a holiday bills. next week. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. not going to run out during my holiday. Uh, well, you know, we might do. Um, who knows? Who knows? Uh, anyway, um, I, I I think we're about halfway through the universe. Yeah, halfway we? through. I think. My next question um, is: How then did the mach- did the machine that solved the Enigma thing work? I feel really an- inadequate when James is here. <laughs> oh, sorry. This is your part, isn't it? This is where your chance to no, shine. No, 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 no. You, you do it. You do it far better than I. Okay. Yeah, James, it should have just been right. you and me this week. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> really, I don't know. We could have just done this podcast from the beginning together. I mean, it's just like yeah. so. Okay, code breaking machines. All right, I'm going to tell you how the code breaking machines work. Here we go. So. 
just the gist. Here's the gist, all right? So what it's doing, and this is the interesting part, is it's actually a little bit backwards, and it's actually trying to find, not going through all the settings, because that would take too long. Uh, it's not going through all the settings trying to find the right one. It's actually looking for settings to reject. So it's actually a process of elimination. You're actually rejecting the wrong settings. That's what it was built to do. So you're rejecting the wrong settings. It's actually quicker to reject the wrong settings than to go looking for the right one. When you find a wrong setting, you can actually reject a whole bunch of other settings together at a stroke. So they all go together at the same time and they don't have to be checked. So uh, by rejecting the wrong settings, uh, you can do that. The bomb machine takes 20 minutes uh, to break this code or to find the correct setting uh, by a process of elimination. Can I, can I add two things? Again, these may be facts that are wrong, but you can correct me. So when you say facts that are wrong, Tom, do you mean not facts? They, they, are, poten they are potential facts. So firstly, all this work was dependent on um, knowledge given to us by the Polish. The Polish were doing this by hand, but then the Enigma machine changed and it had to become mechanised. So you could do this with grids, if I, if I remember right. right. They, they were looking for ways to reject reject um, possibilities like that. Yeah, so so yeah, so we, we should mention the Polish in this podcast. Yeah, so the Polish were breaking the code way before World War II in the 1930s. They had a few methods. There was a method with grids, like you mentioned. Uh, there's a method where they made a catalogue of all the settings and they were looking at little bits at the beginning of the message that gave them little clues. Uh, mm. And mm. Uh, they did build a machine called Bomba, uh, Bomba was, uh, some say it was named after a type of ice cream. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was a dessert, wasn't it? Yeah. That's what I've heard. Some say it was named after the ticking noise it used to make, because uh, it would tick, 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 tick. And some say it was as good a name as any. It'll do. It's, why not? <laughs> uh, so yeah, the Bomba machine was this mechanical machine. Uh, but the Polish methods were based on uh, six letters that were at the beginning of uh, an Enigma message. Those six letters was the uh, Enigma starting position for the three wheels. So it was telling you the starting position. They, the Polish were working on that. If the, if the Germans stopped doing that, and it's likely they were going to, the Polish methods no longer worked. And so that's what Choring had to do. He had to come up with a replacement. Ah. Mm. So, so the, first, the first six letters in any Enigma code were, these are the positions you need for your wheels and your... Well, it, it, was repeat, it was the three positions repeated twice. So it was like ABC, ABC. Mm. Okay. So this was like, this was like, this is the language we're going to use. Right. And then yes. the rest of it was content. Okay. Yes, yeah. I mean, this was a number of the problems with the code, if I remember right. They, they, the, the Germans, if they had used the Enigma properly... Enigma would be unbreakable, but they put a lot of problems in the code, like finishing with Heil Hitler, like always starting with weather forecast, like repeating these three letters. It just put too many weaknesses into the code. So why yeah. why why couldn't you just capture an Enigma machine and then use that to? Because if, if if all the Enigmas are the same, then why could you need to know the settings? But they 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 put the settings. Oh, but no, the, the settings were encoded. You, no, no. So the, the James, you oh, okay? I'll do it. So you would have daily settings which were written down on an instruction book. So you've got an instruction book. It's telling you how to set the machine. Uh, then each message had its and own. And you could get those. You could steal those. You could you? steal those. Although nice story, the navy would write them in soluble ink. So if you got <laughs> yes, and they had a book of water next yeah. time, didn't they? they so just yeah, just throw them. it overboard, and then that will wash away. Uh, but yes, the each message got its own secret starting position, which is what they put at the beginning. Uh, but that was put in code 
as well. The army used the Enigma machine itself to put that in code. The Navy had a code book for that. Same idea. So each message had its own secret starting place. The operator could choose it himself if you're in the army, which led to mistakes. Ah. So this is this was mentioned in the film. So there was a you know an operator who would use his oh, gil- yes the girlfriend's initials. He would use his girlfriend's initials every time. Uh, so, so it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like me using the same password. For yes, it website. is exactly like that. Is Which like- is what then? Uh, yeah, <laughs> my password is Thomas Woolley is a nosy bastard. <laughs> so um, sorry, this isn't actually really a maths question, but how, for how long after they'd broken the code did they? intercept messages using their code breaking so it well it, so we had a little head start because the polish were doing it first mm. so we were doing it straight away uh, but it was a research group you know the navy codes were particularly hard because they were using it better so there were months there was a period of months where we weren't really successful but we got better and faster at it as the the war but also continued. throughout the war they did change how they were using it and that each time they changed it's a we had it's a battle of minds it's a battle of wits so they didn't they, so they did know that the the british were cracking their codes no no the germans did not know uh so no, I, I, there's a good story i've heard that they said um there are two options here either the british have broken right. our code or we were just unlucky and said, well, they can't have broken our code. Yeah, so they can't have broken our code. I tell you what, there must there must be a spy here. Someone here is a spy. I bet I bet it's that Italian bloke up in high command. I don't trust him. It's the one not wearing any underpants over there. It's him, yeah. So they were, and to be fair, that was a more uh, reasonable explanation because the you know the machine they thought was unbreakable and it is incredibly hard. A spy is a better explanation. Is it unbreakable if you used it properly? Is it unbreakable if you use it properly? If you use it properly... So you don't repeat letters of the yeah. star, you don't put Heil Hitler in it, and if you were to just to write one... Yeah. And this is also the thing, if you don't have any statistical um, yeah. work to... If you haven't got loads of codes to work against, if you just have one code yeah. written on the Enigma machine, surely that's unbreakable. I don't want to say it's unbreakable. It would be incredibly hard to break. Uh, what... Uh, Choing was using was that yes, guessing a word and a, or a phrase that's in there. So that would still work if you're even if you're using it correctly. If you can guess a phrase, uh, but it will, it's incredibly harder to use or to break if you're using it properly. Could could modern computers do it? Yeah, modern computers could do it, and they could do it in seconds. But they would still be using the methods that Alan Turing designed. Really? No, no better method has been created. If you just search through all the possibilities, um, that even a computer will take, I don't know, hundreds of years, thousands of years, something like that. Ridiculous amount of time. But we can't just do it that way. We can't just brute force this problem. You still have to have some clever ideas. <laughs> you still need mathematicians. We are yes. useful. <laughs> computer can't solve this by itself. I've, I've got... So that's a, another question. So um, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before but i often have maths questions but often like i have kind of philosophy of maths questions all right i'm ready for it i'm ready for it these are normally very hard james by the way yeah normally they break down to what is mathematics last week we were talking about whether whether maths could be finished whether we could finish it oh is there a future where we can just tell computers solve maths and they just do it james 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 i told her about the unshy dogs problem last week 
Oh, did you? Oh, good. Alan Turing's work again. She completely okay. ignored In me. In Shadux, have you, have you seen a doctor about it, Tom? Because you can get ointment. <laughs> this question is related to something which is called the halting problem. Which it, the Entscheidungs problem. The halting problem. Okay. Entscheidungs. <laughs> um, so the way, the way I understood it, Turing came up with a particular type of machine. Okay, And it was a very simple description of how an idealised machine would work. Amazingly, it was called a Turing machine. Who'd have thought? That's an amazing coincidence. <laughs> okay, uh, but essentially it was something, and um, uh, you had a sort of a, a ticker tape, and the ticker tape could sort of move left and right and sort of add and subtract numbers, and at the end it would come out and it would say, oh, the answer is 12. Okay, so you'd put a, a computer code which said 6 plus 6 into the computer, and it would come out and it would say 12. So one, one question that's natural to ask is... Um, can you find, for example, the biggest prime number? Or can you find, uh, I don't know, uh, 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 you know, uh, some some number you want with some huge problems? Yeah, last, last okay? digit of pi. Yeah, the last digit yes. of pi, for example. Okay, So you could program a computer to try and do this. And one question which is natural to ask is, well, is there a last digit of pi? Okay, will this computer program finish? So you know, you put you you put it into your computer, and it will either stop and give you the answer, or it will go on forever. Okay, so um, Turing, I believe, thought about the question of uh, whether you could come up with a computer that could tell you whether the computer was going to finish. Ah, I understand that. What Turing argued is he said he said he said, okay, so I've got a computer that checks whether the other computer will stop or not, will answer the question or not. I will now devise a question that the second com computer can't answer. And he devised a paradox uh, that the second computer can't answer. It was it was kind of like a liar paradox. You know, it was, if the computer stops, then it won't stop. And if the computer doesn't stop, then it will yeah. stop. It's a, this sentence is false question. He said, okay, tell me this, computer. Yeah. Yeah. This, this sentence is false. Is that true or false? And the computer says, well, that's, if it's true, then it's false. But if it's false, then yep. it's true. And it's, ah, oh, yep. problem. Ever, ever. So, and that's why uh, not all problems can be solved by a computer. So we are needed. Yes. I mean, that sounds a, a lot like you're trying to talk your way into your next academic job. <laughs> <laughs> I try to tell this to my wife, Lorraine. You know that wife I keep telling you it's I have. Fictional. I always try to tell her that. <laughs> She, I am useful. You always need a mathematician, Lorraine. You always can do. We, can we um? Can we get a design a computer program that tries to work out whether Lorraine is real or a uh, or, or a robot? <laughs> no, I think that's a paradox. So there's another thing you could do. So this is why. So the name of the movie is called The Imitation Game, mm. and I think that is picking up on another thing that Turing mm. is famous for, which is the Turing test. Yes, I know okay. this. And, oh, you do. Tell us the Turing test, Liz. The Turing test is as I understand it, is when a person is talking to a computer and when the person believes that the computer is a real person. And I actually run this live. So I, I always have Lorraine in the background on a computer. And I, I give her... Who's fictional. She is real. She is real. Um, I have her talk to a, an AI. And I say she has to flip a coin and either she gets to give an answer or the AI gives an answer. And I do this live with a crowd of people. And then I, even sometimes I've been fooled. Because, but she is real. 
<laughs> so do you go home sometimes and there's some AI sort of, you know, uh, asking <laughs> ask you what you want for dinner? Cooking and, some scrambled eggs. <laughs> Hello, Thomas. <laughs> right, so I think we've decided that the rain is an artificial intelligence. Yeah. Damn it, I walked straight into that. But yeah, that, I mean, the, yeah, the Turing test is, is basically, you know, can, can, yeah, yeah. people spend their time trying to develop a an algorithm that can pass for a human. And one way of assessing that is whether it can pass the Turing test or not, whether people can distinguish it uh, more often than uh, 50% of the, uh, the time to, to uh, some level of statistical significance. Wasn't it recently passed? Didn't someone managed to everyone claims they pass it all the time because what turing gave was a very specific definition of what passing means he said if you could fool the test will be considered passed if you can fool two out of three people five out of ten times something like that it was it was so you, very specific. you can fool most of the people most of the time yeah something not like some that. of the people all of the time yes exactly uh, but I think Reading said that they claimed to have um, passed it. And I retweeted this and then a load of people said, no, they haven't. Ooh. No, they haven't. Yeah, yeah, it was very so, suspicious. Yeah. Uh, I think they said, that, yeah, a guy uh, developed some software that supposedly passed the test, but it was pretending to be a uh, non-English speaking child. Ah. Right. So they, they undermined their own tests there. Yeah, people were going, well, okay, it's so a non-English speaking child. Yeah, this probably is. And that that was the, <laughs> the, the chatbot, yeah. But I mean, actually, there, there have been a huge amount of people trying to uh, crack the, the, the Turing test. I mean, Google have even tried it, haven't they? But didn't their chatbot, their chatbot tried to learn off other people's tweets? Oh, didn't it become super racist really quickly? It became very racist very quickly, if oh, I remember yes. rightly. Yes. I think it was I think it, it was Microsoft, actually, rather than Google. But it, uh, oh, was yeah, it Microsoft then? Was, oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. They had to pull it. But, uh, but what, what, I, what, what this brings to, I think, is what the genius of Turing actually was. Right? What Turing could do, better than anyone else I've ever seen, is that he could change the question. He could see a question being asked and said, okay, that's important, but you're asking the wrong question. What Because the, the, the question is, can computers think? And he said, well, that's not the right question. The question is not can, can computers think, but can you believe a computer is human? And he also did this in biology. Well, this kind of led me to another question, which it's sort of coming towards the end of my questions, but which is, right, so we've like mapped the human genome. Is there a world where yes, yes. we can work out how brains work and then just build one with a computer? Theoretically, yeah. Theoretically, the the mind is just electrical impulses passing between neurons. Um, if any machine can imitate a brain, then mm. a computer can, because a computer can do what any machine can do. Uh, and that's and that's one of the things that uh, Choing argued to see the computer is so flexible that if there is a machine that can imitate a brain, then the computer can imitate a brain. What is a computer? Oh, great question. Ah. So a, a computer is something that can do more than one job for a start. So it's programmable. Uh, so a universal machine, um, what Choin described was called a universal machine, which means mm. it could perform the action of any other machine. So a, a machine would be something that's doing a, maybe a calculation that ends up with a number at the end. Uh, there is a way that the computer can imitate that machine and it can imitate any machine like that that has an output 
Well, so, so if it, the, the original Turing machine was one set operation, then the universal machine would be mm. any operation. Is that right? Yeah. So you could have a Turing machine of Turing machines. That's, that's the idea. So my phone yeah. is a Turing machine. So if I press a button, some instructions are fed to the machine and it becomes a calculator. Right? I press a different app, some instructions are fed to the machine and it becomes a calendar. Press another button, it becomes a browser. Right. Whereas before the idea of a computer, you would have a separate machine that was a calculator, a clock, a this, a that. But uh, a computer can be fed instructions and then imitate that machine. So a phone wasn't a computer before smartphones? Correct. Yeah. OK. Even when they were mobile phones? Yeah. Your smartphone is a mini computer and it's a it's a it's a marvel it's an amazing piece of technology a computer used to be a human didn't it a computer used to be yes. somebody that sat yep. in a room and added that numbers used to be, up it was a job title yeah that was your job oh, i am a computer wow. it was someone who wow. checked someone who checked arithmetic it was um you know if you're a scientist and you need your calculations checked if you're an accountant and you need your calculations checked you would employ a computer or a calculator would you say that, you know, if we would you say Turing was more important in the history of mathematics or in the history of computing? What yeah, what what was Ooh. what was his contribution? He, he, I can tell you I can tell you exactly. He was more important in the history of mathematical biology. His paper, and we'll get on to this, because don't you dare stop asking asking Sorry. maths questions before we do this. His maths paper <laughs> on biology is his most cited paper. Okay, hold so on, hold he, on, that hold is on, his hold most on. important legacy. So I've got one more maths question, which is what was it? What was it that Turing did to do with mathematical biology? Well, I'm glad you asked, Liz. Oh Come on, God. James, tell us. Okay, so there are these things called Turing patterns. Sorry, Thomas. So there are these things called Damn Turing patterns. <laughs> and you might be wondering, why does a leopard have spots? Go on, you do it. No, no but the thing is, I actually gave James a piece of spiel that he could use, so I, I wanted to yeah. see if he would break it out. <laughs> um, so again, there's this idea that Alan Turing changed the question. And the question was... Where does complexity come from? Everyone always asks this question of, well, why should there be stuff rather than nothing? Why, why doesn't everything just spread out in the universe? Why, does th- why do things come together, clump together like planets or plants or humans or brains or fingers? Why should there be patterns rather than nothing? And Turing's brilliance, Turing's genius, Turing's non-intuitive solution was that he showed reactions and diffusions could come together to produce these patterns. Each individually, the reactions on their own, they don't produce patterns. The diffusion, diffusion destroys patterns. Diffusion wipes out patterns. But if you put them together, and God knows how he found it, that's why I would love to have a conversation with him, just to say, what were you thinking? What came through your mind? How those were put together to produce amazing patterns, like leopard spots, like fingers, like your spine, like your brain... That is what Turing said. So, saw. wait, wait, wait. What's a reaction and a diffusion? Right. So, reaction network. So, this is just any reaction. So, chemical A plus chemical B gives you chemical C. Reaction. Yeah. Okay. And what Turing said is, I want a stable system of reactions. So, chemical A plus chemical B will go to chemical C, and then you'll get a load of chemical C, and nothing chemi- nothing will change. Mm-hmm. So, okay, those react, no pattern. You'll just get chemical C. Nothing happens. Yeah. Diffusion. You, you know what diffusion is. You know, you put milk in hot water. Milk will spread out. Yeah. It will t- tend to spread out. And you don't get blotches. You don't get stripes of milk. Mm-hmm. And what he showed is if you put the reactions and the diffusions together in just the right way, you can get high levels of C somewhere else and low levels of C. So you get stripes or spots or all these different types of patterns. Wow. That is amazing. 
Yeah. In the last se- la- last shot of the film, uh, the last um, scene of the film where he's depressed and um, he's crying, behind his head is his paper, the 1952 paper of the patterns that he produced on the very earliest computers. That And uh, we were in the cinema. I, I saw this when it first came out. I was with my wife, Lorraine, and we were watching <laughs> this. And, and we got to the end of the movie, and I was like shaking it. There it is. That's my work. I am justified. <laughs> I've seen those papers as well. Uh, I've been to the Turing Archive uh, in Cambridge, yes. and you can, you can see those papers. And it's online as well. The Turing's papers are, yes. are online, and you can go look at them yourself. His letters and things like that, they're, they're lovely to see. But uh, actually, let's go back to Ben's question, because I mean, it is an important question. So he he's a genius in these three fields, mathematics, computation, biology. What is his most lasting legacy, do you think? His recipe for chocolate brownies. <laughs> Just absolutely was good. No, tell us seriously, James. Well, it's yeah, you're trying to uh, pin him down, I think. You're trying to pigeonhole him as a, a mathematician or a computer scientist or a mathematical biologist or this and that. And people do that. Even at school, you've got your physics lessons, your maths lessons, your chemistry lessons. And why are we doing that? We don't have to pigeonhole him like this um beautiful answer yeah. james beautiful beautiful answer james and with that shall we go to the puzzle zone well just Yay. one last question okay and this is this is point on uh there being a maths lecture in films okay okay oh yes liz liz love you love this this is point why if it's the last maths lesson of the day and you've got two minutes left do you start <laughs> the proof that route two is irrational <laughs> I missed that. How did I miss that? I... No, I did see it, Basin. I forgot to mention the two-second... Uh... And it's, oh, no! Oh. Term's over. We can't prove the root is right. It's a five-minute proof. <laughs> what kind of lesson planning does this teacher have? Imagine. Imagine if Turin had had a good maths teacher, okay? <laughs> what are we talking about now? Okay? Oh, dear. As the movie shows, he was far ahead of the maths class anyway. Yeah. And with that, shall we go to the puzzle zone? Yes. I think we should. <laughs> Is this the puzzle zone? Wow. It's beautiful here. It looks a lot like Mathematic Wow. Cool. (laughs) This is so zony. This is lovely. Look at those puzzles over there. Those wild puzzles I can see. Don't leave them, James. The James, don't go towards them. James, don't go towards them. Uh, So two weeks ago, I introduced the puzzle. Two puzzles. Uh, You you had a bonus puzzle because one was a, a puzzle that was given to Ramanujan. And one was a very simple one that I just wanted to to tease you with. The first one was I bought a bottle and a cork for pound ten pence, The bottle costs £1 more than the cork. How much do the bottle and cork uh, uh, cost? Liz, did you have a go at this? 5p and one pound 5p. £1, 5p and 5p. Excellent, yes. And you know, there's nothing difficult about that, but it's just one of those moments where you have to stop and think because the number of people who say, well, it's pound and 10p, yeah. it's very surprising how many people mm-hmm. do that. But that, that was the easy no, one. I, I will confess, I've, I've done that. I've fallen for that one before. It's, uh, and I think the first time I think I did it as well. So it's very easy to just follow. But none of the listeners to this podcast would. No. Of course not. Both of them are very, very Neither clever. Neither of them would. Like my wife. <laughs> Your wife doesn't exist. She's not this thing. <laughs> she's an AI. No, <laughs> she's not. Damn. Um, anyway, the, the question that was given to Ramanujan was, I live on a street and the houses are numbered consecutively, one up to N. Okay. And I, there's more than one house on the street, so you can't use the just one house answer. My house has the strange property that if you add up all the numbers below it and all the numbers above it, then they equal exactly the same number. 
So you don't add my house into any of them. All the houses below it and all the houses above it. If you add the below and you add the above, they come to the exactly same number. Now, the, my, my question was, what's the lowest solution? There are an infinite number of solutions to this equation, uh, to this question, uh, but what's the lowest? Did you have a go uh, this I might have forgotten to do that. Ah, oh, Liz. So the answer, the, the, the smallest answer is one, of course, but I, I disregarded one. And so the next smallest answer is there are eight houses and I live at number six. So one plus two plus three plus four plus five is 15 and seven plus eight is 15. Do you live at number six? I, I live at number six, yes. Yes. And where does the rain live? <laughs> in my computer apparently um so that was the answer if you got that congratulate yourselves pat yourselves on the back but if you if you do want to generalize this you can use a thing called pell's equation and actually it comes down to the irrationality of square root two <laughs> what are the, all the different answers well to we that. haven't got time we haven't got time to we haven't time we haven't time to talk about that but it's a, a really amazing it goes into some amazing mathematics it, it looks at pell's, pell's equation, equation. continued fractions and the square root two irrationality of square root where two. are you going to leave your proof unfinished just before the end of the lesson <laughs> we haven't got time it's a holiday I, we haven't got time james we haven't got time uh ben i believe the puzzle is with you this week the puzzle is with me and it's a very short puzzle okay i have two children one of who i don't i don't have many children okay but for the purposes of this <laughs> for purposes of this question um i have two children okay. i have two children tom tom why don't you have children with the rain you could just create a couple immediately I have two children, one of whom is a boy born on Uh, a Tuesday. Oh. What is the probability that both my children are boys? Nice. I have two children, one of whom is a boy born on a Tuesday. What is the probability that both my children are boys? And we'll come back to that in two weeks' yep. time. If you think you have the answer, uh, please do email us at podcastmaths at gmail.com or you can tweet at us at podcastmaths. Just email us. Tell us what you thought of the show. Tell us what you think. If you've got any questions for us, please email us. Um, Put the subject of your email as uh, Turing test the rain and just say yes. <laughs> yes. If you want to ask Lorraine a question, I will get her to answer it or a computer and you can decide. Hashtag, or you can tweet, tweet, hashtag Lorraine is real. Lorraine is not real. Please do and that. James will write a universal register machine that will answer this question <laughs> um, and uh, we'll be able to find out whether Lorraine is real in a subsequent episode. <laughs> Excellent. And with that, let's wrap up, shall we? Yep. <laughs> Right, well, that brings us to the end. So let's get some scores. Um, Liz, would you like to start? What did you think of the film and what are your scoring system out of? Okay, I quite liked it, but I liked it less when I realised how inaccurate it was. Oh. Um, I'm going to score it out of Q. Out of Q? It's not actually Q, though. Q represents another letter that I um, (laughs) set in a code. And um, so for the maths, I'm going to give it N. And for the film, I'm going to give it P. Oh, so very high then. Okay. James, would you like to uh, give us your thoughts on the film and and, and a spurious mind? Okay. So I feel like I'm the party pooper here. But as a film, as a film... (laughs) Poop away, poop away. As a film, it's definitely, I recognise it as a good film. I'm a film fan, you know, know, the acting, the direction, I have no problem with it as a film. The accuracy 
it's not an accurate film. So uh, in that case, on a scoring system out of 159 million, 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 I will give it <laughs> a six. Oh, I mean, Ooh. that is so harsh, man. That's very low. That's, that's, Benedict Cumberbatch was nominated for an Oscar. And so what about the mathematics? What, what, so that, that's for the film. What about the mathematics in the film? The math, that was added to, that was an added together score. The f- oh, really? So the, both of them together is six. That was oh, six for the film. That's an aggregate. Oh, dear. Ben, what, what do you think? Wow. Um, well, uh, I, you know, I actually really enjoyed the film, okay? Um, I was probably watching the wrong film, um, as we know. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> what Bruce Forsyth. Um, so what what the listeners can't see there is that Ben was dancing to that, which was one of the best things I've ever seen. <laughs> it would have been better if at the end of the film they, they brought on Alan Turing and said, didn't he do well? Didn't he do well? <laughs> oh, could, could we just have a moment of silence for Bruce Forsyth? Right. Um, we haven't done a moment of silence for Alan Turing. <laughs> he was dead a long time ago. But also we dedicated a whole podcast. So was him. Bruce Forsyth. Yeah. Uh, you know, he still lives in. on. Anyway, uh, Marks, um, I'm going to give it Marks out of uh, six times 10 to the 23. Marks out of a mole. Uh, and <laughs> I really like the film. Okay. Uh, ben and Lark's Cumberjacket was uh, was superb. Kira Knightley is one of my all-time favourite actresses, um, just because she can't act, but she's pretty and she keeps trying. Um, and- oh, my God. Ben, Ben, ben we've, had, we've, had, we've had these special chats so many times, but we're going to have to have another one. That's okay. You just carry on. But I wanted to know that there's a special chat coming. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I quite like I quite like the film. Okay, and I'm going to give my marks out of one mole, which is approximately six times ten to the twenty-three. Um, Lux Cumberjacket was fantastic. Uh, uh, Kira Knightley is um, an actor of you know such repute and uh, discernment that we, we 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 cannot fault anything she did in this movie at all. Um, but you know, I thought it worked really well. I, I know it's not entirely accurate, um, but I'm going to give it 0.85 of a mole. Um, however, mm. um, the maths. Well, not true to life, okay? I did like the way that they inspired people to go and build great big computers out of Lego. Um, And, uh, you know, I like the general feel of the movie, but unfortunately for trying to prove that Route 2 is irrational and running out of time, I'm going to have to give them uh, Route 2 over 2 over mole. So about (laughs) 0.7. Marvellous. And so then it comes to me to finish us off. Um, I I'm with Ben on this. I I enjoyed the film. I think Bristleback Chastity Belt does a wonderful job <laughs> uh, portraying the tragedy. I mean, that's what the film is about. I, as I've said, Alan Turing is my mathematical hero. My my doctoral theory, thesis was on his work, and so I feel I have that connection with him. And it it is a tragic and incredible story that of his life. And even though it's not quite true. I think the elements in there that show how much he went through are good enough. So my market scheme is going to be out of 1952, which is the year he published The Chemical Basis of Morphogenesis, which is the paper that I love. Uh, I'm going to give it 1900 out of 1952. Mm, wow. 
I, 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 the mathematics, though, interestingly, it's blink and you miss it. it. It's all relegated to the background. It's it's very rarely there. I mean, they mention a few numbers here and there, but as I mentioned, you know, my the the biology work that's a picture in the background, so I have to give it less. Mm, 500, oh. 500 out of yeah. nineteen. It's not 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 the, not the best maths film we've seen. Not the best. Um, but anyone uh, does anyone have anything else they want to say? No. What are we watching next week? Oh, we've got something different. So we've had two biopics uh, over the last couple of weeks, and so I wanted something a bit different. <laughs> so I think we're going to watch <laughs> Pie. Oh! Oh yes, it would have to come sooner or later. What an irrational choice. Okay, can I can I eat pie? While I watch mm. it, you can try. I would like to see. Okay. Now, James, have you seen this pie? I have seen. seen pie? I remember pie very could well. You, without spoiling it, without spoiling it, could you give Liz a suggestion of what she's going to face? <laughs> uh, the words do not describe what she is okay. going to face. Um, I I don't like um, anything difficult or challenging in a film. It's not. It's not a horror okay. film. Okay. Oh, well, there is a point but it's not a horror film it's it's pie we are going to be watching in two weeks we're going to review pie okay i've just remembered there was something else i want to say which was thank you james it was so nice to have you we enjoyed talking to you so much thank it's you been so much. a joy a pleasure um, and we'll be we'll be forwarding this uh, podcast to airline security for <laughs> <laughs> i'm just i'm just gonna stay here in the puzzle zone but thank you very much. We enjoyed it. Yes, no, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. And with that, I have been Thomas Woolley. I have still and forevermore will be Ben Parker. I have been Liz. And I'm James Grime. Good night, everybody. We're winning at maths and losing at night. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Marvellous, Ben. Marvellous. This podcast is a Random Walks production performed by Thomas Woolley, Ben Parker and the enigmatic Liz. Intro and outro music was Clonky Donkey by Nikolai Heidlas and the incidental stings were Cartoon Bank Heist from YouTube Audio Library. <laughs>